blessing to be returning to God's Word and um, just allowing it to speak into our lives. I kind of looked at the text and I was like, Lord, only you know. I don't know what you're trying to do to me. I don't know what you're trying to do to us. But, um, you know, the Bible speaks on these things. The Bible speaks on how we're to live and it speaks on what our relationships are to look like, and it speaks on how we're to work through the tensions of getting along with one another in whatever course of life we're in. And in that, we recognize that God cares about the details of your life. He cares about your every day. He cares about your every situation, and he has a plan. He has a plan. And so as we walk in that plan and we see his purposes fulfilled, then truly we're able to see transformation in a way that glorifies God and just shows off how great he is. Because God is great. And that's a woeful understatement. God is great. God is amazing. Listen, we'll be here all day. And so... Let's get to shameless gospel living. So we're in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Um, I'll read the text and then we'll pray. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not, but showing all good faith, excuse me, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Father, we thank you because... You haven't just given us a philosophy to try and work out how to follow. You sent your son, God in the flesh, to come and live among us, live in a way that we could see what you are really like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He lived your life before men. That is just mind-blowing in and of itself, Lord. That a man would live as God among men. (sighs) 
And yet that very same man was killed at the hands of those he created for the sins of all who would believe. And he was raised from the dead on the third day. And so we have confidence that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus, you are Lord of all. And you are the captain of our souls. The chief shepherd who leads us in your way. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us. Help us to have open hearts and minds. To hear how you would speak to us, us, us. To speak to each of us individually today. In ways that would affect and impact our lives. We thank you, Lord, that such is your desire for us, such is your intention toward us. Lord, I ask that you would show yourself strong among us, forever still. In the glorious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we're looking again at the letter to Titus from the Apostle Paul, and he sent Titus to Crete to put things in order. The Cretan people had a reputation of being lazy, greedy liars who worshipped a God who was a lying womanizer. And so there was a job in terms of translating the gospel from their cultural mindset and understanding, where they were even trying to blend in some of their kind of um, previous views into their Christianity and yet distorting the picture of what God's really like because this is the call of the Christian to bear the image of Christ. So every person's made in the image of God and yet that image has been corrupted, distorted like a mirror that's been shattered into a thousand fragments. You can still see glimpses of images but it's completely distorted. And yet Christ has come as the restoration, the perfect restoration of that image. And so those who are in Christ, who bear his name, are being conformed to look like Christ. Now thankfully, as we explored last night, that doesn't mean that we need to look like him in physical appearance. Because then that would have everyone in trouble. If you're a woman, you'd be getting gender reassignment. If we even knew what kind of color he was, then there would be all kinds of bleaching or whatever going on. But we're not given the physical appearance of Jesus. Apart from to say that in his death, he was grotesquely marred. In his torture, he, he was so grotesquely formed or disfigured that people couldn't even look at him. That's what matters concerning the appearance of Christ most. And yet we're being called to be conformed to his image in terms of his character. In terms of his character. 
And character is something that is worked out in reality. Character isn't something that just exists in our minds. It's what we do. And so this is the focus. And as we look at these verses um, in chapter 2, 1 to 10, we see that there are a few points as he addresses different layers of, of the household and of the, the church community, that there is a, a concern that the behavior of the believer will not bring shame to the name of the Lord. And so we see here in verse 4 at the end that the word of God may not be reviled. So all of those instructions that the word of God may not be reviled. We see again as we look at Verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having, having nothing evil to say about us. And again in verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so, if a person professes to be a Christian, there is a clear sense in which what we say we are is matched by the way that we live. People say, we're to talk the talk and walk the walk. And this is for the sake of the honor of God's name. It's not even that we might get credibility and we might get kudos and we might get ratings and we might be like, yeah, you're a real Christian. Actually, it's so that people might say, God is really great. That God is real. And that he's true to his word. And so in the first instance, we see Paul addressed Timothy having in chapter 1, dealt with the issue of leadership. Appoint good leaders and confront corrupt leaders, chapter 1. He now turns to Timothy and he says, but as for you, I mean, you got these corrupt leaders talking all kinds of shady things, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine." Sound doctrine is not by personal definition, but the Bible gives us that which is sound doctrine. And there are principles by which we're able to clarify and understand sound doctrine. So a basic principle, we want to understand what the Bible means when it says something. We let the Bible interpret the Bible. It's not a matter of personal interpretation. I've just come from the throne, throne, room, throne room of God. I've just come, you know, the door closes behind them and you see the vapor cloud of the Shekinah just flowing out. And, and I used to sit in meetings and really look up to people who would actually, literally say things like that. 
And the, the fruit of that encounter of being in, in the throne room and in the presence of Jesus and the room being filled with the cloud of the Shekinah and being white and so on is that they would come and tell you something and because it came from that place of origin, you are more convinced to believe it and take it on board because this was from this special experience that they had with God. And so now, this must be a serious word. And so that which is good teaching and that which is received and, and accepted as being for our consumption and obedience is not based on whether it actually is consistent with the voice of Scripture, but it's based on the experience of this individual who has met with God in this special way. That's not how we understand sound doctrine. And so it's important that we allow the Bible to define for us that which is sound doctrine. We had a great community group on Thursday, on my days. And we tackled a really meaty, challenging issue in the context of corrupt leadership. And so Brother Bertram, he showed us a clip of... Uh, 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 some, some ministry going on I, 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 in bunny ears yeah quote unquote ministry going on where there was a, a man who was now gonna heal somebody who was mute and could not speak and the means by which he was gonna administer healing to this young girl because it wasn't a guy it was a young girl he, was, he, he, he proceeded to kiss her on the mouth long and hard. Now, it was just uncomfortable watching it. I don't know what it could have been like to be there or even for her to experience that. And this was the means by which healing was to be administered. And so the question is, is that right? Um, and we chopped it up. I mean, Thursday, gang. Yeah, it was. Paul said to me, Thursday, it was bagging. It's the best one yet. <laughs> and I'm like, it was. Because what do you do with that? When they say, well, look at Elisha. Elisha, the prophet, he laid down on the, the dead son and put his mouth in their mouth and put his eyes on their eyes. And So am I not just walking in the anointing of Elisha? Or Jesus spat in mud and put, it on, and put it on the blind person's eyes and they saw. And There were unusual ways in which healings were made manifest. I'm giving you, the Bible was my authority for sexually abusing this girl. What do you do with that? Now you're, you're hearing that and you're thinking, I wish I was there on Thursday. <laughs> Because what do we do with that? And we were able to establish, looking at Scripture, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So when you're building a house, how many times do you lay the foundation? Once. So those men who were anointed and appointed by God to serve that role as apostles and prophets, 
Their job has been done. There is nobody else ever who walks in that category with that authority and that so-called quote-unquote anointing. Their job's been done. The foundation's been laid. And so we now stand on what they have done. And so therefore, we don't expect people to be behaving in, in strange and outlandish ways in the name of the Lord in order to demonstrate that Jesus is Lord and his word is true. Because that's already been done. And in an era when the prophets of old, the Old Testament, they were under strict condemnation if they prophesied falsely. Deuteronomy 18 tells us that if a man prophesies and it doesn't come to pass, he should be put to death. So when they open their mouth to say, thus saith the Lord, or when they performed an activity in the name of the Lord, they were doing it at risk of their own life. There ain't no one out here calling themselves a prophet under that kind of condemnation, under that kind of risk. If it don't happen, oh, well, you know, maybe I didn't hear from God. Or it wasn't your faith. Your faith wasn't great enough. All kinds of... Now, prophecy, healing, am I saying that those things are not true for today? I'm saying they are in their place. But God did use people in the scriptures in strange ways in order to validate their ministry and his word through them. That validation has been completed. That verification is finished. We know God's word is true. Because we have the history of it to look back on and see how he has been consistently faithful throughout. And so we don't need to see strange things. The most strange thing already happened. A man was crucified on a cross in front of a city of people, naked, shamefully, executed as a despicable criminal. He was dead for three days and after three days he came back from the dead. How much stranger do you want? It doesn't get stranger than that. And so, that ministry having been fulfilled, according to the word itself, we appreciate that there are certain things that are done in the name of the Lord that are not sound, they're not healthy, they're not proper, they're not good. And one of the reasons why these things are done and they're so commonplace among us is because people have departed from sound doctrine. Unfortunately, it's the plight of the modern era because if you look back through a couple thousand years of, of church history, it's in the last few hundred years and even the last hundred years that you see this kind of epidemic of doctrinal illiteracy and error. There were always pockets from the beginning. We see that in the writings of the Gospels. But it's important that we're given to sound doctrine. That's why we teach through the Bible. People are like, you know, when you guys preach, man, it's just like, it's great, you know, it's the word, but it's kind of long. And I, I'm like, Okay, but it's God's word, right? Oh, yeah, 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 man, I love the, the word of the Lord, you know? Yeah, <laughs> you love the word. So, okay, cool. 
And then I just observe. And I'm like, I wonder, to what extent does this person actually read their Bible? Because I know before I came into an environment where I was being taught through the Word, I wasn't somebody who was given to reading through the Word. I wasn't. And being taught through the Word helped me develop that motivation and that insight to actually read through the Word. Even the hard bits. I'd read bits and pieces here and there, but no kind of consistent reading through. And so we're not to get our, the definition of doctrine from TV, YouTube, blogs, but from the Bible itself. There is doctrine which is sound, and there is doctrine which is unsound. Amen? In verse... Verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul had spoken to Titus already and highlighted and flagged up that this is his agenda. That the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness would be upheld amongst the people. The knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So it's not just truth for truth's sake. And so then Paul goes on now to address two layers of the community as he looks at the household. Older men and older women. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Now, you might say, older men, like, okay, what, what, by what definition does a person become regarded as an older man? <laughs> it's relative. You know, in some cultures, uh, an older man is going to be viewed as someone who's like 25. In other cultures, it's going to be somebody who's over 40, maybe. I had a conversation with our young people that um, we work with on Wednesday, and we're trying to help encourage them to be aspirational and to really kind of see the opportunities that they have even as young people. So Pastor Rob mentioned we have TLG, and we're working with secondary age pupils. And so we're developing a, a, a business unit where not only are they having opportunity to kind of develop their creative skills, but also to put that to use as far as being a business unit and using those creative skills to, to make money that's going to earn them trips and treats. And I said to them, look, you know what? I want to I tell you something that is going to be a, a real benefit to you in life. Not just in learning, in life. I said, can you tell me in one word the difference between a young person and an older person and an adult? Someone said, age. I was like, yeah, it's a good guess. Someone said development. I said, yeah, that's, that's also very good. Long pause, no answer. I said, why don't you try responsibility? Responsibility. Because fundamentally, adults are people who have come to a place where they are now prepared and ready to take responsibility 
for themselves and maybe even for others. That doesn't mean that as young people you have to be irresponsible. One of them said, yeah, because some big people, man, they're less responsible than kids. It's true, isn't it? We know that. And this is what the verse is talking to. You're a big man. And you're living frivolously. And all you want to do is sit down and play Xbox. And smoke weed and go raving. Come on now. Be sober-minded. There's more important things in life to attend to. Even in and of yourself. Even if you, you weren't someone with children and... So even you yourself were created for more than just loafing, as we used to say. Loafing, you remember that one? He's a loafer. It's a silent T, you know. <laughs> loafing. Be sober-minded. Have some. Have some sense of self-worth. Be dignified. That's what it's saying. Look, know who you are and know your worth. And for some people, that's a struggle. And that's why they act so out of order and with, with a lack of decorum and ratchet because they don't have a sense of self-worth. They don't have a sense of because maybe the way they were treated, maybe because of the way they were treated by parents, by teachers, by police, whoever. And they buy into the lie. I'm not worth nothing. So whatever I do don't matter. And however I behave doesn't matter. It's a lie. Because at the very least, when a person understands that they were created in God's image, that Christ died for them. Listen. Say, oh... He's a waste, man. He ain't worth nothing. No, actually. His behavior might not be, you know, very pleasing, but every single individual from the homeless person begging on the street to the prime minister in number 10 Downing Street is of equal worth and value in the sight of God. I remember growing up, my granny used to say to me, Ephraim, that's how she used to call my name. You know, you can't argue with kings. It's just how you do it that matters. And it was funny because the notion that she felt like I had the authority or worth or value to even have a voice that would speak to those in power. You can argue with kings, but it's just how you do it that matters. And the how you do it that matters didn't really kind of, it, what remained with me was like, I can argue with kings. <laughs> the rest will come. Uh, but I can argue with kings. Shut up, this is who you are. Some of you probably still see that in me. <laughs> <laughs> It's all right. It was good grooming. 
Anna. Amen, brother. <clears throat> Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. This word has come up already, even as Bertram shared about healthy leadership um, a couple of weeks ago. And it struck me, I was sharing with someone, that word self-control. Often we see that word as being us having the ability from, um, to, to refrain or not do things that are, are not good. That are not helpful, that are not healthy. And so I'm not going to smoke or I'm not going to you know, do whatever it is. And I'm going to have self-control. And it can be very easy for us to look at our lives and think, well, you know, I've got, I've got self-control. I'm, I'm good with my money. I don't live extravagantly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I take pat lunch to work. I've got, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we would look at in our own lives as being a real kind of expression of discipline. But what really struck me is that self-control isn't just passive, but it's active. It's not just doing the things that I ought not to do, but it's also doing the things that I ought to do. And I was convicted. Convicted. Because there are so many things that I ought to do that I don't. You can just look at my physique and see that. Convicted. And so self-control is, it's got to be more than I'm not doing the things that I ought not to do. But to what extent am I doing the things that I ought to do? To be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. You know, it's really countercultural to consider those virtues and those qualities. That somebody would be somebody who has a conviction, who is a man of conviction, who has faith. And not just faith in a generic sense, but somebody who has got to a place where they're able to say, my faith is in Jesus Christ. I know in whom I believe, and I know why I believe him. Because if you struggle as to why you believe in Christ, then your faith is not going to be sound. It's going to be shaky. Because somebody will come and spin you some Egyptology or some Mormonism or some whatever, New Age talk, and you will get rocked. And so, we see these countercultural virtues that are you know, that even kind of challenged the, the, the common notion of manhood. That the man would be loving. And not just to his spouse and his children, but a, somebody who's able to express love to others. Without it being impure, without it being, you know, corrupted and tainted by sexual kinds of nastiness. I'm trying to find a word that, you know what I mean? Just, it doesn't, and our culture says that if a, a man is going to show love even to other men, then there must be some kind of sexual incentive there. 
But we're called to love one another. And as men, we're called to love others without any kind of hint of sexual impurity. And, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's counter to this kind of bullish <clears throat> man's man. I can lift weights, drink pints, score girls, I'm a man's man. It's like, what's that about? Let's not buy into that ideology and that foolishness. That's not real manhood. Young men, any young men in here, I'm telling you, that's not real manhood. Be a man of conviction, a man of godly principle, one who is loving, one who is steadfast. You're dependable. You're reliable. You say you're going to do something. Listen, I've had the privilege and joy of being in ministry with just great men of God over the years. And I'm, talk, I'm not talking about in a general, generic sense. I'm talking about here in Ecclesia. You know what it means to me? I walk in this morning, right? Pastor Rob, my dog, from day, day one, from day dot. I walk in this morning, and Pastor Rob's sitting down there, and he's like, oh, bruv, you made it. I know it's been, a, it's been a long one. You know what? I just said, one man just said to me, you know what? Let me just see if I need to put something together to get my, have my man's back just in case I get the call and he can't make it in. That's what you call a brother that's dependable, steadfast, always been that way. Not to put no attention on you, bro. I've done it already now. But, but we've got to celebrate the men of God among us. Brother Bertram, Brother Neil, Pastor P, holding it down in Dulwich. Listen, I don't have to look through the pages of history to find men that I look up to and respect and I've got love for as guys that are examples. I look around me. And I see that being evidenced in other guys' lives around me. I don't want to start calling other names because then people start getting offended when I don't call yours. But you get what I'm saying? Guys who are stead full of conviction and love. It's a beautiful thing when you see it. And it's, it is that that we are to aspire to be as a, a picture of Christ-like manhood. Older women... Here we go. <laughs> Likewise are to be reverent in behavior. I thought about that and I thought, how apt that is for our culture. You know, we have had this trend over, you know, past decade of the ladette. And this sense in which, you know what, the girls have got to be able to go as hard as the guys. And so, you know, when it comes to drinking games and raucous kind of behavior and activity, the girls are right up there. Amen. <laughs> it's true. It's true. That's right. I understand what you're saying, my brother. I understand what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, man. man. Man's testifying to the truth. <laughs> yeah, man. Amen, brother. <laughs> That's, it's real talk. We see that as commonplace. And often, you know, 
we see that even in the context of the church, which would once have been viewed as a sacred space, it's like, you know what? Whatever people go on with outside, they will kind of think twice before bringing it inside. So even if girls been out raving with the ladies, ladies night, gone, had a great time, and felt like, you know what? I need to be in church in the morning because I know that if I'm not there, my mama is going to be on my case. And she's come in and she's got two hours, if that, maybe. The reality is, back in the day, she's not coming in to church wearing the same thing she wore out to the club. There's a certain reverence there where she realizes, I can't go inappropriately, like, everything on view into the house of the Lord because that's not reverent. It seems like they had that problem, problem in Crete because they needed to be telling the older women to behave with, in, with reverent behavior. And it's something we need to hear today. Particularly as those who are the ones who bear the name of Christ. And that's not just reverent behavior when we're in church. Come on now. Because it's easy to play the game when you're on the field with the other players. But <laughs> when, when you're not in the gym <laughs> with the other players, where's your game then? When you're in the work canteen and, you know, they're showing you the videos on WhatsApp and Snapchat and some dirty nastiness and... Is there going to be a joining in? Is the behavior going to be reverent in that setting? As it would be in the context of the church? This is gospel 3D. Not just in church, but every dimension. Not slanderers. Not assassinating people's character with the mouth. Someone said, if looks could kill, if words could kill. <clears throat> now, maybe they had an issue with loose talking, talking about others, carrying people's business. Not to be slanderers. You know, it's, it's, it's so important that you know, we as individuals are very mindful of how we engage with the very readily available culture for gossip and slander. I saw a quote that said, if we entertain gossip, then we are just as guilty as having gossiped ourselves. And so we have to watch ourselves. We have to be considerate of how we hear others speak about others when not in their presence. Not slaves to much wine. 
but instead they are to teach what is good. So, contrary to what is experienced in so many churches, and something that I feel that we need to address more fully here amongst even ourselves as Ecclesia, women are to teach. Women are to teach. It's a bigger subject as we explore, okay, how many levels does that work on and in what ways does that work? And I think it's much more than we um, give the Bible credit for. But they are to teach, to teach what is good, and so train. And so we have this sense of teaching and training. There's the, the passing of information, but then there's also assisting in the application of that information. Every single woman here has a purpose and a responsibility to help others understand and work out the gospel. The Christian faith isn't this, you buy your ticket, you get on board, you're on the glory train, and you just sit and enjoy the ride until you get to heaven. That's not how it works. But rather, you've been enlisted into the army of God. There's a, a war to be fought. There's, 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 there's a, a battle that we've received that we are to walk in. Knowing that the victory has been won. We're just enforcing. We're, 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 we're God's spiritual enforcers. Enforcing the victory of Christ. As we resist sin and Satan and the world. And in doing so, there is the necessity for those who come on board. Who come into the fold. Who join the squad, the troop, to be trained. And so it's a misconception to suggest that, oh, that's just the job of the pastors. This is everyone's job, including the ladies. And so teach what is good and so train. Focusing on the youngers now. See, we, f we think that um, gangs were the uh, originators of olders and youngers, right? We've got older men, older women. Younger women, younger men. And in this, there is this clear sense, and I wonder if this is where they kind of got the idea from. I'm your older. And the whole notion is, as you're older, I'm going to school you, and I'm going to bring you up, and I'm going to show you the ropes, and I'm going to bring you in, and I'm going to help you, and you're going to, quote, unquote, serve me. That's, that's how it works in a gang, right? We understand that. But that's one of the things that gives gangs appeal and makes it so attractive. Because there's a sense of belonging and there's a sense of purpose. I heard Les Isaacs, he, he's a, the, the guy who started Street Pastors. He used to be a Rastafarian. He said the church is the biggest gang in the country. Because if there's anywhere where there's supposed to be this sense of belonging and purpose and camaraderie and 
walking together and serving the Lord together. It's supposed to be in the church. Not just coming, sitting down on a Sunday and listening to sermons. So, train the younger women, older ladies, to love their husbands and children. Now, does that mean that every younger woman should aspire to marriage? <laughs> no. But in the context of Crete, we understand that they were opposed to marriage, but they were sexually promiscuous. And so as we see the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7, look, if you are burning with sexual desire, then get married. If that's where you're at. Marriage is good. And marriage is good for that. But outside of the context of marriage, then hold it down and have self-control. To be self-controlled. And so, if there's a desire to be married, at least know what you're desiring. <laughs> because a lot of people enter into marriage and they've been meditating on Hollywood movies rather than the reality of what marriage is. You know what? I might have to come back to this next week, you know, because there's too much here. There's too much here. It's going to mash up the program, but you know what? We have to work it out. <laughs> Hollywood is just that. It's Hollywood. Where they create fictitious films. And as we get older in life, we begin to appreciate the inconsistencies and the, the dishonesty and the fantasy element of what is being portrayed in these films. But you start speaking to someone who's been married for any little time. They don't even have to be married long. And you've got a relationship with them where they feel that they can really open up to you and help bring you in and bring you on and, and give you insight. You need to seek out those relationships, you know. could save your life. Because you bring two fallen people together who are in the process of sanctification and you can guarantee that it ain't going to be no Hollywood movie. <laughs> I missed that one. Listen, it would definitely be a drama. <laughs> but it's not going to be no rom-com. And so, there is a need for there to be training in that regard. What does it look like to be married and a parent? And, you know, it's one thing, I, I was speaking to someone the other day, I'm having all of these conversations recently, and um, we're just talking about, you know what, we've, never, we've, we've done single seminar, we've done marriage seminar, so on and so forth, we haven't done a parent in one yet. I think it would be really good for us to do one. So keep that in prayer, it's on our hearts. <clears throat> But there's a need for training and instruction. Otherwise, we just get our insights from glossy magazines and, you know, Hollywood. Younger women to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. 
And so you kind of get this sense of what they call the Proverbs 31 woman. You hear allusions there. And, you know, you've got the, the woman of Proverbs 31 who's faithful to her husband and diligent in caring for her children. And she was also someone who was industrious and so on. And um, some would say, well, does this mean that, you know, um, uh, someone who's married can't work outside of the home? No. And it's a shame to see the way in which it's been used in that way to oppress women. Because that's not what it's saying. The reality is that if you're a, a wife and a parent, in the order of God, there is a sense in which you have a primary role, a primary role as a caregiver and homemaker. But it is not an exclusive role that the, hubs, that the husband is not a partner in. And if any married man will be able to say amen to that. Because we recognize that we're partners in this. But there is a primary role there. And if a person is able to fulfill that primary role, if a woman is able to fulfill that primary role and still be able to do other work without it being to the detriment of the children and the family, then so be it. Praise be to God. And so it's just a matter of priority rather than permission. Are you permitted to work outside of the home? No, your priority is to that of the home. And yet, you're able to manage multiple priorities. And this is the thing, women do this so well, my gosh. Juggling multiple priorities faithfully. Submission to husbands. That sounds like a dirty word right there. Pastor E, do you know my husband? About submit to husband. Are you serious? My man is one of them ones in verse 1 who's a loafter. <laughs> this isn't conditional. It's not submit to your husband if he's, he walks on water and glows in the dark. This is just a reflection of God's order of creation. And so we recognize that, as they say, you can't have two bull live in a pen. You can't have two... That's how I say it, isn't it brother? Two bulls in a pen are going to just clash constantly. There has to be a point at which someone takes precedence when it comes to decision-making and the final decision of things. Now, understanding this, wow, I thought Mel was coming to correct me, you know. <laughs> I was just like, Lord of mercy, there's a first. Lord, all right then, Jesus, meet me now. <laughs> Wowzers. Okay then. Could have waited until the next verses, maybe like, you had my heart pumping in my chest like, Lord of mercy. Listen, it's all good. So when it, when it comes to submission, it's not whether the husband is worthy of submission, but it, it is a reflection of God's order of creation. And in this, 
You know, in Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. But in verse 22, it says, Submit to one another. Submit to one another. And so there is a sense in which we all experience submission in every aspect of our life. In the church context, we submit to our elders. In the work context, you submit to your boss. We submit to our parents. We submit to one another, depending on who's got responsibility. And so submission isn't as deep as people kind of, no, never, never submit to your husband. We're submitting to each other at all times in all different ways. But in a woman submitting to her husband, she is paying homage and reflecting her regard for God's order of creation. And ladies, please hear me. Please hear me. Please, please, please. Please. I want to tell you something. And it's only something that a man can tell you. When I say it, you may understand. You might not believe me. The guys, especially those who've been in relationships or married, will have a certain degree of, of appreciation for this. But I can tell you, as a matter of fact, there is nothing more powerful than a submissive wife. There is nothing that impacts and wins and softens the heart of a husband more than a submissive wife. And so, contrary to the way in which it's portrayed, oh, if you submit, you'll just be under the thumb, you'll just be ruling over you and riding roughshod and having you do whatever and just sitting down there, bring me my dinner. <laughs> Where's my shirt? Like, listen. There's no way that a man could experience relationship with a truly submissive woman and not be touched in his heart and not concerned to be like, you know what, you've been so good to me, you know? Like, what can I do for you? How can I bless you? How can I serve you? How can I love you as myself? That's the response that it elicits. I can testify to that. And I thank God for the way in which my wife has modeled that. To the point where there's certain times when, you know what? The deepest conviction has come upon my life when I see the submissive nature of my wife. Amen. Just sitting down thinking, Lord, I'm a wretch. Look how she could have just bad me up over that. She could have just defied me. Not that she doesn't try, sometimes. <laughs> She's got a mind of her own, isn't it? Of course. It doesn't mean that you, you, you lose your sense of reason. You, you, you don't have any convictions. But in those times of submission, the weight of conviction, the responsibilities on me, you know, I'm, I'm the one now who's making this final decision. My gosh. You know I'm going to be consulting my wife. So what do you think really, though? Like, tell me. <laughs> Because I don't want the weight of that responsibility on my shoulders just to me to be making that decision by myself and then have to account for the consequence. 
Look how you mash up the family. Look how you mash up our life. Look, it's your choice. I don't want to hear that. So I want to know what she thinks. I want some guidance. <laughs> and so, submission isn't blind permission. Ladies, please hear this. Submission isn't whatever you say, whatever you want. Submission isn't, it doesn't mean that you cannot challenge your husband. And the Lord knows we, we need challenging. But when we see these qualities outworked, we recognize that actually it causes God to be glorified and his word not to be called into question. People, people are easy to disregard God's word. Uh, that gospel that you preach is nothing. No, people can't say that easily when they see it being lived out in these countercultural ways. So, older men have some gravitas, some dignity, conviction, be loving, reliable. Older women, be reverent, not slanderers, not gossips. Not given to liquor and wine, but rather teach what is good and also train younger women. And you know, the beauty of this is that even as we consider the, that which is being commended as necessary for the, for the Cretan young women who culturally were opposed to marriage. At the same time, for any single woman, these things are only going to be helpful and beneficial. You know, you may be a single woman who's not inclined toward marriage. That's all right. And yet you still live in community. You still live in a family of some sort. You work amongst colleagues. You study amongst your peers. And if nothing else, you're a part of the church family, the church community. And so there are transferable qualities in this that have application. And the reality is that none of these things that are expected of each of these categories that have been mentioned already are actually... Um, exclusive to those categories. When you think about it, there's an application in it all for all of us in terms of how we conduct our relationships, how we partner with one another in life, how we glorify and honor God in our attitudes and actions. So I'm going to invite the team to come up. We're going to have to finish this um, next week. <clears throat> God has a plan. That his people who bear his name would bear his image. That our lives would be so distinct. 
that people would say yes and amen, God is good. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.